you are on the journey of business. An entrepreneur and innovator who spent a lifetime of advising from behind the scenes, building businesses through word of mouth and referrals. Now Mike Wolf is ready to share these strategies and business outlook with you. You're here. You're ready for the journey of business with Mike Wolf. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the journey of business. I am Mike Wolf. Super excited today. I got a guest in the building. Mark Stoose is the CEO of Proof Analytics. I'm super excited to talk to him about revenue and optimization and marketing and, and AI and everything that's going on in the world today. So I want to welcome Mark to the show. Hey, thanks, Mike. It's really good to be here and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I've, I've dug into your background. I, you know, we talked a little before the show. I'm really excited to talk about, you know, your experiences, what brought you to where you are now. Those are, you know, always what kind of this, the journey is what I call it. And so, you know, I, I was wondering if you could maybe break your resume down, but not go crazy. But you know what I'm saying? Things that brought you to where you are today. Sure. I, I think that the, the best way for me to characterize my journey, and that's exactly what it is for every single one of us, right? Right. Every morning and every evening. I mean, you, you grind it out, right? Right. My journey has been a a the path towards becoming more and more T-shaped as a person, as a professional, as a leader, as a business person, right? So what does that mean? That means anybody can specialize and it's, it's really important to have specializations, right. right? But if you don't pair that, so that would be this part of the T. If you don't pair that with this part of the T, you don't have a T, Right. And the top part, the horizontal bar of the T, is all of the contextual understanding that you bring to the table through which you see your specialization. So you don't look specialization up into the T after a while. I mean, you do initially because it's just the way it works. But the ultimate goal is to operate as a business leader who happens to specialize. Yeah. So what does that look like, right? As a marketer, works for any function, really, right? It means that you can talk about your function without ever using functional terms. You can talk about your function entirely using business terms. And this also really gets at the heart of the, the, uh, the larger idea. And that is, for example, you know, you, you'll hear... Marketers talk about marketing strategy and sales leaders talk about sales strategy and IT leaders talk about IT strategy. That's complete horse hockey, as they used to say on MASH, right? Right. There's only one strategy, and that's a business strategy, and that is then executed, manifested through all the functions. And being a T-shaped leader is effectively that, right? And so as I ascended in rank across different companies to the very senior most level, it required me to become more and more and more T-shaped. And then I would say that my involvement with analytics starting about 20 years ago and, and being an analytics-led functional leader, CMO, CCO, whatever, really reinforced that T-shapedness right, in me. It accelerated it. 
there, there were people at Honeywell, for example, that I don't think ever realized that I was actually a marketer. Right. Because I, when I met with them, I never used any of those terms. Right. Yeah. So, so within Honeywell, I mean, when you were there as a global marketing and communications leader for the aerospace, the global aerospace business unit, like what did that really look like for you? Was that overwhelming? Cause you had like an $11 billion budget. Like what does that look like? Well, the revenue was about 11 billion. Our budget was still very large. It was, it was on both OPEX and the CAPEX side, it was bumping 200 million. Oh, okay. Globally. So, yeah, I mean, we're talking about 1,000, 1,200 marketers in that organization around the world, highly distributed globally. So, yeah, it's a it's heavy-duty complexity. I think that by the time I got to that job, though, I had done other similar roles to the point where, you know, I had the skills and the perspective necessary to do that role well. And I had a really awesome team and I knew how to leverage that team. You know, I think that a leader that tries ultimately to have his or her hands in every pie is, is, is going to have a problem, right? I mean, that's, there's a, there's only so much in every one of us to give, right? Right. Yeah. And I get a lot of questions about that. You know, people, you know, delegating, you know, from the smallest business to the business, you know, the biggest businesses, you know, people that are doing serious revenue in sales, you know, they're afraid to just let it go, especially business owners, people like that. You know, I mean, do you really find that as you kind of work up the ladder, or you worked up the ladder? You know, I know you've probably kind of mastered the delegation piece at this point, but I mean, you know, initially, did you run into those kind of resistances? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the, what, what you learn, I think, is that when you start to feel like you have to personally get involved in, in something that you would not normally get involved in. Right. That is a, that's something you need to look at very, very carefully, because that's like an early warning sign that you may not have the right people in the right roles. Right. And sometimes it's not about kicking people out. Right. It's about rearranging people in roles because sometimes people just flat out get put in the wrong role. Yeah. And if you put them in a different role, all of a sudden they're a star, right? And you're just like, wow, I'm so glad I didn't fire that guy. Uh, you know, probably the easiest way to, to talk about this is we, you know, everybody's familiar with the people process technology triangle. This triangle is not equilateral. It is very, very, very scalene. And the people leg of the triangle is by far the longest. Sure. And so if you don't approach your organization in that way and realize that above all things, you are leading people. And yes, the processes are important and the technology stack is certainly really important. But those are there to magnify the performance of people. Right. Not the other way around. Sure. And so you got to get the people part right. And that means you got to you got to acknowledge the fact that people are not binary. They don't they're not either great or they suck. Right. 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 They are very situational. And so, you know, the best thing to do is try and figure out what situation that person could be really successful in and put them there, assuming that they want to do that. Right. No, that's great. So. I was wondering if you could break down 
the business for proof a little bit. You know, I know it, uh, it's a lot of marketing and innovation and and kind of revenue optimization. But like, wh- what is what did, would you say is kind of the mission behind proof? So the big question forever in go to market has been, hey, I'm spending a hundred million dollars or ten million dollars or fifty million dollars, whatever it is, on marketing. Right. What am I getting for that money? What's its impact on sales? Can we say with any certainty that we are selling more, that we have better profits, that we are selling faster with marketing than without marketing? I mean, that's that's essentially the essence of the question for most CEOs and CFOs. So we're talking about causality. We're talking about cause and effect relationships. Sure. And we're talking about pretty complicated networks of cause and effect relationships. So fortunately, the math to conquer that hill has been around for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, it's called multivariable regression. The, the challenge has always been, not just for that, but for analytics in general, is how do we operationalize the math? Yeah. Right? At the clock speed of the business. In other words, how do we make the, the insights relevant at the moment that people need them in order to make a better decision? Yeah. After having done it the old fashioned way, which is I had an army of data scientists at Honeywell that, I mean, we basically solved this problem by brute force. Right. But it was incredibly expensive. And there's just not a whole lot of companies. I mean, Honeywell's Fortune 50, right? I mean, and they they never even blinked to their credit. They didn't blink at the fact that we were spending seven, eight, nine million dollars a year just on analytics. Right. right? Sure. Didn't even blink. But there's not a lot of companies who would take that position. And so it, it became clear that this had to be automated and it had to be automated within a software package. Right. Right. For most people to be able to access it and get the benefit from it. And so that's ultimately why proof exists today. It's not about, we don't have any unique. You would not want us to have that. Right. Right. So, so what would you say like for people who are starting a business, you know, with no budget, no marketing budget at all. They're coming out of the gate. They're trying to get, you know, their their customer acquisition costs. They're trying to figure out all these different things to really kind of figure out a way to get a foot in the door to, to you know, create a, a footprint. What would you say like some some bare bones, basic marketing push would be that, that you would see today? Well, I think that number one, you know, you're trying to build awareness. You're trying to build confidence and you're trying to build trust right. in the marketplace. Right. Psychographically, that's what brand is. Awareness, confidence and trust. Yeah. So I think that if you're doing this with essentially no money, you're going to have to really do a lot of heavy lifting for a year, maybe on organic LinkedIn and have some really powerful things to share, powerful insights that get people's attention where you are showing not only that you have the expertise but that you know how to connect with them and talk to them in their language about whatever it is you're talking about. So I think that that's a big part of it. And then I think that, you know, initially everybody has to be able to, as a founder, you have to be able to get your first several customers yourself. 
when we were building proof, we had about 20 customers that were all blue chip, right? And were paying us some money. So they were legit revenue customers. Okay. But they were paying not very much money. And they were mainly paying us in the currency of product feedback, which at that moment was far more valuable than cash. And so I think that you have to be able to make those kinds of deals early to prime the pump, right? To say, hey, what we've built here has enough credibility already that Oracle, Intel, whoever, right, is involved with us, is they're customers of ours, and they're actively helping us improve the product. That immediately sets you apart from most startups. No, that that's great. So where do you see AI fitting into that? Do you, I mean, there's a ton of talk around the chat GPTs of the world and the things like that, where people are able to kind of dive deeper uh, into breakthrough, if that makes sense. You know, I mean, t- talking, you know, they're like, it, it's almost kind of a fail safe for some people who aren't experts in those fields to be able to say, hey, as an expert on this, how would you approach this and how would we generate this on social? How would we, you know, it, it's very intriguing to me. How do, you, how do you see that fitting into the mold for where you are? Well, I mean, we have AI in proof. It's very targeted, focused uses of AI, mainly to help data analysts build better models faster. There's also a lot of automation. Automation is, in, I mean, like everything in AI, right? People have lots of different opinions. But a lot of, more and more people see automation as a form of AI. I, I think of automation, though, as being completely part of all AI. It is a, it's a thing that makes the AI part of it actually function, right? Because without automation, it would still be manual and it wouldn't be AI in a sense, right? So... I see automation as being kind of a foundational element rather than part of AI. Here's just a few high-level principles, right? You cannot look at AI all the same. There's lots and lots of different kinds of AI. And what is true for one of them is not going to be true for the rest of them. So you, you cannot take it as a whole. That's number one. Number two, it, it is even more vulnerable to the classic GIGO, garbage in, garbage out problem that uh, has been a part of the software universe forever, right? Where, where you see right now with generative AI, the data that it's accessing is super important. So kind of like, again, super high level, public gen AI. So this would be chat GPT, things like this, right? So it's essentially sucking on the entire internet. We all know, so, so statistically, it's sucking on, an, on a large enough sample pool of data to be viable, right? Because remember, AI is a big data solution. It's not a small data solution. So you've got that, and then you've got the, the reality, which we all know all too well, that there's an enormous amount of crap <laughs> right. on the internet. So I, I had ChatGPT when it first came out write me a research paper on a very arcane subject within 
Renaissance era history. And I don't know, three minutes later, it spit out a beautifully formatted academic style research paper, fully footnoted, all that kind of stuff. And if you didn't know anything about the subject, you would say, wow, this is pretty awesome. If you know anything about the subject, it had so many errors in it, it wasn't even funny. Right, right. Right. So you have to you have to be very, very careful about that, right? The private versions are even more sensitive to that because the amount of data that you're using to feed them is a lot less. There's and there's just you know, you want to talk about a subject that is extremely sensitive to the law of unintended consequences, it is AI. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Like there's a an author yesterday, an author found out that her books were being used without permission as source material by ChatGPT. She is suing them and Microsoft and a bunch of other for copyright infringement. And she is absolutely positively going to win. Okay, it's an open and shut case. It, it, in fact, it'll it won't even get there. It'll just be settled, right? Sure. So AI doesn't somehow it's not a magical pill that gets you past existing laws, right? Property ownership laws and all that kind of stuff. You know, so all that stuff is real. And and we're just now getting past all the euphoria to the point where everybody's kind of going, okay, this is going to be a longer journey than we had originally thought it might be. Right. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think AI is interesting. I mean, everything from high school kids writing papers off of AI, which I run into a lot because I have twin daughters that are 16 and they talk about it. And now teachers are having to go against that and kind of regulate that, which I think is hilarious. Like they don't have enough on their plate. Now they have to, you know, proofread something offline. Yeah. Even within business, you know, I think people who can't who are not marketers, who are not salespeople like us, who can't really kind of touch people at their heart when it comes to marketing. I think there's ways creatively that I think AI is beneficial. You know, I think it can lay groundwork for people, at least in my experience from what I run into. But, you know, I also totally agree with you. I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a real walk. This is going to blow your audience's mind. So as an investor, I have recently seen two, LLM driven buyer apps. These are apps that allow a buying circle, buying team within a enterprise to using prompts, a system of prompts, right? You, you, the, everybody puts in what's really important to them about whatever it is that they're wanting to buy. Right. It goes out into the internet. Okay. And it gives you a final recommendation on what you ought to purchase. Now, that is kind of like a, a mind blower all by itself, right? But here's where it really gets interesting. In the same way that companies have been publishing content that's only meant to be read by SEO engines, right? People are now publishing content that's only meant to be read by these kind these LLMs. Right. And so these are, these are, this is content that will never, a human eyeball will never fall on this content. Never see it, right? It's kind of interesting because not only does it give you the opportunity to talk about your product and promote your product to the LLMs, okay? 
but it allows you to, for the first time ever, to write content that depositions your competitors. Wow. That essentially talks smack about your competitors, right? And your competitors are unlikely to even know that it's happening for at least a pretty decent length of time. And so there's just all kinds of stuff that, and then what happens too is, so you've got a lot of content being generated by ChatGPT and put on the web and it joins all the other content, most of which is still human, but then it's all reassembled and reassembled and compounded and reassembled again by ChatGPT and other LLMs. And so, they're already projecting that by the end of 2024, the vast majority of the content on the web will be LLM created in one form or another. No, it's just very inflationary. I mean, if you thought it was hard to get your content noticed before, it's going to be impossible now. Right. And I, and I think the interesting side behind that is, you know, everything from click funnels to everything could be born out of what you just talked about. You know, it's, it's, it's driving traffic away from your competition it's dry, you know, I mean, it's literally planting seeds that, that, you know, I think are in perpetuity a good thing until they catch on to it, right? Till your competition catches on to it. Yeah. I think that, I think that the biggest challenge, though, is almost ethical at some point because, you know, you're either as a marketer or as someone in go to market, right? You are, you're either ultimately trying to win a deal by genuinely helping the other person. For sure. Or you're trying to manipulate them into, you know, separating themselves from some of their money, right? We appear right now to be focused on the manipulation part. And that, that is, that's something to be very concerned about, I think, you know, because it never lasts, right? It will always come back around and bite you in the ass. And, and then you'll be in recovery from that rebuilding your credibility for a long time. Right. And, and, you know, I think there's, like you said, I think there's some danger in it for sure. But I do think that these get rich scenarios create themselves a, a cash grab. I mean, you know, and a lot of, let's be honest, you know, we run into a lot of people who aren't necessarily doing ethical business on the regular and they're going to do whatever it takes, especially on the marketing side. Somebody's going to bring somebody in to, to do that kind of back end work for them. You know, I mean, like you said, I think the reputation crusher is there, but I, I s- simply believe that AI is creating a revenue stream for people that they never would have had before. Yeah, I think, but I, but I do think it's a very perishable stream. Agreed. Yes. The, the real money makers that are leveraging AI have yet to even surface, right? And they will be not something that you can use, you know, on your iPhone. Okay. Right. It, it, it's not, that's not going to be the long-term play. Yeah, I, I just I don't I, I think there I mean, I have fr- really I have several really good friends who are really at the top, top of the game in quantum computing. Same the same deal. Right. I mean, and what they're doing makes most AI look like nothing. But you will but you will not be able to. I mean, there, there will always be some use cases, you know, that for quantum computing that you will that will gain some notoriety and popularity and all that kind of stuff, right? But most of quantum computing is serious heavyweight subjects that the average right. person is not going to get involved with. And yet a lot of money will be made. Yeah. A lot of money for sure will be made from quantum computing. 
Well, that's what's up, man. Hey, so I want to talk about the book that you're working on because I, I'm, I'm fascinated a little bit about what you have going there, the interview portion of that and how you're doing the backend research with, with CEOs of, of big deals and big companies. Can you break that down and kind of, because I think it's going to be a big thing. So I'm really excited to kind of talk about it if you have some time to talk about it. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, this has been, uh, you know, the whole issue of how well everything is working and what are we getting for our money in, in marketing and go to market has been a question, uh, has been an argument, right, in, in those professions with the C-suite for as long as I've been in the profession. So that's 30 plus years. It goes back even further, right? There's that old quote from John Wanamaker in the 1920s who said, you know, I something to the effect that I, I know that I'm wasting half my money on advertising. I just don't know which half. It's not a new idea, okay? What has really spurred, though, this coming into a boiling point is the cost of money in the last year has quintupled for a lot of companies, somewhere, some, somewhere between quadruple and quintupled, right? So that's four to five X more expensive than it was before. Right. So that means that... And it's not nearly as easy to get new money to replace money, right? As it was before. Yeah. So it's not it's not easy to get new money, and it's more expensive when you do get it. So that means the opportunity cost of being wrong with that money is more than the average business can bear. Right. And so things that are genuinely speculative in the minds of a lot of people like marketing investment, marketing's impact on the business that, that is thought of today, unfortunately, as being speculative, starts getting into you know that massive scrutiny. You know, we've seen really significant budget cuts. More importantly, we've seen increasing finance oversight in the money that is still budgeted for marketing. Yeah. Where marketing has to go check with finance every time it wants to spend some of its money. Separately from all of this, you're seeing data science teams because of their own screw-ups in the last five to seven years being brought in organizationally underneath finance or FP&A organizations. Okay. And so now FP&A in particular kind of has a much more expanded analytical capability than it ever has before. And they're using that. And so they're effectively nationalizing things like marketing analytics, MarTech, all that kind of stuff. They're just saying, hey, you know what? We're going to run that for you. And it's all going to be transparent. We, we're not losing sight of the fact that you need it and you need to benefit from it and all that kind of stuff. But guess what? We need to benefit from it too. We have a better understanding of how this actually needs to work at least for our purposes and finance, then you obviously do. And so we're going to kind of take it over here, right? And that is starting to really happen. And then the last big thing, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that come out of these interviews that are fascinating, but a lot of these guys and women are, are, are starting to realize that as CEOs and CFOs, that they are they own more than half of the dysfunction with marketing 
because they have the positional power to do something about it. If they're not happy and they don't take any action, guess who owns it? They own it. And so they are starting to raise their hand and say, hey, you know, the fact that we hire and fire CMOs every two to two and a half years, it's not a good sign that we're not doing this the right way, right? We keep on throwing, you know, a new person into an old structure and somehow thinking that it's going to turn out differently and it doesn't. So there are, there's just a lot of this stuff. The next thousand days or so, next three years, it's going to be a revolution led in some ways by the C-suite as opposed to the functions. They are seeing go to market for the first time in very, through a lens of CX, customer experience. So they're seeing it outside in. How does, how does a customer interact and experience our company through all of these different piece parts? And there's, you know, classically go to market is marketing, sales, customer success and product. But I'm seeing a lot of people start, a lot of companies starting to add things like contracting. They're adding accounts receivable or collections activity into it. Uh, I have one customer I was talking to them and they were so upset because they had lost a $30 million a year customer because a guy, a guy in collections had been such a butthead about the way he was enforcing the, the net terms that they finally just said, you know what, if, if that's what your company's like, then we're just not interested. And so they just churned, they just left, right? All because of one guy, but that one guy was interacting with two guys on the customer side who had a direct pipeline up to senior most people in that, cus in that customer organization. And, you know, basically said, these guys are jerks. We need to ditch it. And they did. So they're seeing that as that is part of go to market, right? That is part of the CX that people have. And so when viewed that way, the next big question that they have is, okay, so who's going to run all this? Like holistically yeah. cutting across all of these functions, who can run it? Because our, our CRO can't run it. Our CMO can't run it. Who, who's going to run it? And my hypothesis right now, and I think a, a lot of their hypotheses as well, right, is that ultimately the CEO is going to be that person, at least for some period of time. Yeah. And it's not that the CEO is going to be setting go-to-market, you know, operations and all this kind of stuff, right? But they are going to be, they're the point of accountability. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. So so when you interview all these people, hundreds and hundreds of CEOs, I mean, how much more work do you have to do to put in to, to finish the book? What are you expecting, you know, timeline-wise? Are we a couple years out from probably seeing the, the end result? No, I'm hoping very much that it's going to publish right before the summer. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Because I pretty much have finished the interviews. I mean, I may do a few more. You know, there's, there's, you know, publishers have such an interesting perspective on a lot of things. And one of them is, is that they, they want me to get to a nice round 350. So that, that would mean I've got to do nine more. Right. Right. Sure. So, I mean, I might, I might do that. I might not do that. I don't know. Right. But I will say this, they are very upset 
like every single one of them. There's not one of them that I spoke to that is like, ah, oh, there's not a problem. Right. Not a problem. No, there's nothing to worry right. about. They are pissed. I mean, the amount of expletives that are used in a lot of these interviews to describe both marketing and sales leaders, right, is kind of like I'm, I'm actually kind of glad I can't quote them, right, because I wouldn't want 300, 500, 800, however many people we're talking about on those teams hearing, seeing, right, what their senior leader actually thinks of them. Right. Right. I mean, that wouldn't be cool. But I mean, it, it's but it, it is really intense. You know, I mean. When, when they're saying the effing this and the effing that and they're referring to major functions, and I mean, you're just kind of like, yeah, right? And then you, you start to say, well, wh- wh- why do you feel the way you feel, right? Well, number one, the marketing team can't manage their money. They're always over budget every quarter, and they don't know they're over budget until the last minute. And so if you're a CFO... That is such a breach with like your core values that it's like they look at marketers and say, you have an irredeemable character flaw. That's kind of the way I interpret yeah. it. And then, and then the whole proof of value and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that they are, one of the things they're most pissed about is that they feel like that they have been living with this problem for a very long time, which I, I know that. CMOs and marketers feel exactly the same way about that, right? But they see marketing team, their marketing team, doing nothing to fix it. In fact, doing a lot of things that will supposedly fix it that anybody with any knowledge of math knows is a DOA kind of Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So attribution-based, you know, touch-based attribution systems, right? This is... A fiction. It's a fiction. It's not that touch data doesn't matter, that it's not valuable in a causal analytics model, right? But you can't just map the customer journey and put weighting or you know, your own weightings on it inside, hey, this is what's working. That does not happen. And you cannot optimize spend based on that at all. It's just you're violating huge laws of mathematics when you do that, right? So, and and every, they're frustrated that everybody seems to know that except for the marketers, right? And so that is a, that, that's just some examples, right? And again, I, it's not that I agree with everything that these guys say, but they do have a pretty strong perspective. It's got to be fascinating, you know, not uh, not to go crazy on this, but I mean, it's got to be fascinating to be a fly on the wall of that, right? I mean, you know, you you, you kind of are getting insight into things that most people, no people really have, right? And you're kind of living inside the mind of the CEOs, watching them find faults in their own space, which has got to be like a wild setup. Yeah, I mean, and particularly given the fact that I've lived it myself, you know, so... 2004, 2005, I'm at HP. I'm working really closely with Mark Hurd, who was the new CEO, who was very operational focused, very customer focused, would constantly bust all the marketing leaders, including me, about our inability to prove our value. You know, I mean, he was a very visceral guy, 
and he would get in your face, right. literally. Right. Yeah. Like things that probably would get you in trouble from an HR perspective today were not, it was a different world 20 sure. years ago, right? And so, you you know, I remember having my back up against a whiteboard, you know, and I could feel his breath on my face as he chewed me out. So I get it. I've, I have, I have experienced, you know, I was a marketer like any other marketer at that time. I just decided I got to a really, you know, which I won't bore you with all the details on it, but I got to this very existential place where I realized that I either had to fix this problem, but I had no idea how that was going to happen, or I had to completely go do something else. Because the thing that I most wanted at that time in my life was to be significant and I felt like that being a marketer was almost a guarantee that I would never be significant. Right. Now, do I, do I see it that way today? No, I, I like to think that I've matured a lot. But also, my use of analytics during the rest of my career and then the work we do here at Proof, right, has solidified my belief in marketing. I, I, I would stack my belief in the the multiplier power of marketing, I'd put it on the scales with anybody. I, I think that I, you know, it's not often I would ever say something like this, but I think I probably know more about the actual real calculated value of marketing than most people, particularly in B2B. Right. That's great. I think there's a lot of people in B2C that know it, right? But in B2B, not so much. I mean, the fact that I am still on a list of way less than 10 B2B CMOs who have connected all the dots and legitimately can show impact on more deals, bigger deals, faster deals. Okay. So revenue margin, cash flow. The fact that 10 years after I did it at Honeywell, that's still true. That's exactly the problem I'm trying to fix. I want that list to explode. Yeah. It's a, marketing is such a great profession, but this one problem makes it suck for too many people. Yeah. Right. And the value of marketing is so intense. It's, it's actually having done the analytics on a lot of different functions inside of a large corporation. Marketing's whatever marketing spins and does impacts so many different parts of the business positively that the last function that should ever have a doubt about ROI is marketing. Right. Some, day, some days I, I feel like Don Quixote, you know, tilting at the windmill. Yeah. But other days I don't feel that way at all. But, you know, that's, that's I, I want to, it freed me up. If I can free up other people with a little bit of math, that's what I want to do. Oh, that's legit, man. I, I will say, you know, like it sounds like it's a testament to the experiences that you've had and the hard work that now you're kind of on that top 10 list, like you said. And, and you know, I, I am curious kind of getting you out of here on, on maybe this last question, you know, hanging out with these people, having these conversations, being the fly on the wall in those in those conversations. How is that affecting what you do now? Has it shifted any kind of mindset that you, uh, or or are you still staying on the same path that you were on? And because you see these big Fortune one thousand companies or less, you know five hundred, one hundred, whatever you want to be in, 
How is that affecting the way that you want to move forward with proof and, and the way that you actually run your businesses? So I think that we're already seeing FP&A teams as a major new buying center for analytics in general and proof specifically. Right. So that, that definitely is part of it. However, I think that one of the things that these conversations I've had in the last year have given me already is everyone knows this term, which is the only reason why I'm going to use this term, but I am, I am able to be a whisperer of sorts. So like I will sit down with CMOs and I'll say, what are you hearing from your CFO, your CEO, whoever, right? right? And they're typically pretty upset kinds of conversations, right? And, and, uh, and they are, so they'll share it with me. And I'll say, okay, against the backdrop of all these interviews that I've been doing, let me interpret that for you. I think very, very accurately. And so in a very kind of more dispassionate sort of way, right? I will say what they're really saying is X, Y, and Z. The marketing leader will sit there a lot of times and kind of think for a few minutes and then they'll say, well, that's reasonable. Right. Okay. So, so, I mean, hey, you know, that's, that's progress as far as I'm concerned. And I said, yeah, I said, you know, the, the problem is that everybody gets so upset and everyone's venting all over the place that it ignites the fight or flight thing and it's just totally not productive. Right. right? So I find myself as, as kind of that interpreter layer on the middleware layer, right? Between these individuals, because I can talk marketing to CEOs and CFOs and I can talk CEOs and CFO language back into marketing, yeah. right? And so that is, uh, that's been really, I think really, really cool for me personally. Everybody wants to feel at the end of the day that, yeah, the company made money and did well and all that kind of stuff. I mean, but also that it made a difference that, you know, you, you, that you were here for a reason that you changed somebody's life in some way for the better. And so right now I'm, I'm getting a lot of that and kind of interestingly enough, I'm getting it from the, a lot of these CEOs and CFOs, right? So when I'm, when I'm in doing the interviews, I try and keep it me asking the questions of them. I don't, I don't want to blur the lines and start like consulting with them, so sure. to speak, in the middle of the interview. Yeah. And, but, but if they want to call me later, right, and some of them do, I'm happy to, to tell them what I think. And, you know, and I told one, one CFO, I said, look, you're, in, you're totally right. You are completely entitled to be incensed, right? The facts, not your interpretation of the facts, the facts bear that out, okay? Right. But is you being all pissed off about it going to help the situation? No, it's not. What these people really need is you coming alongside them and saying, look, I realize we see the world through different lenses. It's really super important that you start to see the world more through my lens in addition to your own, okay? And so I'm gonna, I really want to help you and help all of us get to a point where we no longer have these kinds of conversations. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about, right? Otherwise, I mean, I've lived with this fight for 40 years, you know, almost 40 years, 35 years, right? It's crazy. 
I mean, it, this is insane. The fact that, that it's ongoing today is, is just sheer insanity. Right. So we need to fix it for everybody's sake. We need to fix it. Well, hey, unless I'm leaving anything out, I'm so thankful for you coming on today. I know you are busy. I know you are doing a thousand things and I'm, I'm super grateful for you taking the time. I will definitely have all of your information in the bio set up of the page. And, you know, if you have anything else, man, I'm super grateful for you being on. Hey, it's my pleasure. There is, there is a, there is a fix today, right? It comes in lots of different flavors, one of which is proof, right? And, and so there's no, there's no need. We're not talking about something in the future anymore. We're talking about it right here, right Absolutely. now, yeah. right? It's, it's a doable deal. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to have spent the time with you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you so much for tuning into the show today. Uh, if you have an amazing experience today, I hope you go over to Apple and Spotify and check us out. Uh, and we'll see you next week on the journey of business. To continue your journey of business, subscribe to the show wherever you find podcasts or at YouTube. And for more information on consulting inquiries, go to www.tradelinksales.com. Thank <laughs> you.